Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As you know, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. We put the nun in nonfiction podcasting. This month, the podcast of the month is the History of Westeros podcast, the newest member of the Agora community. As you might gather from the name, in the History of Westeros, hosts Aziz and Ashaya provide in-depth analysis and discussion of George R.R. R. Martin's books and the TV show based in that universe. For those who are fans of the books in the show, this is a fun and engaging podcast, and it's a great way to get more out of these stories. If you're looking for a nice intro to the show, Agora is planning to do a show in the Agora feed where we compare Aragorn from the Tolkien universe to Jon Snow from the Westerosverse. Yours truly will, of course, be taking the side of the last son of the House of Numenor, so that might be a great way to check out Aziz and Ashaya. Or, if you are already sold, you can check out their website at historyofwesteros.com. And, of course, you can check out all the great podcasts put out by Agora at agorapodcastnetwork.com. Now, I mentioned this on my Facebook page in early December, but you should all know that Agora has engaged in a sponsorship deal with Studio Sweden Headphones. I'll be plugging the company for the next few episodes, and honestly, I'm actually thrilled. Not because I'm going to get a ton of money from it, but because I got a free pair of headphones from Studio Sweden. I'll get to who they are and the inevitable script in a minute, but before I do, I just want to give you my personal background here. I'm kind of an audio guy. You may not always be able to tell from my episodes, but I have been somewhat obsessive about music and audio-delivered content since before podcasts were a thing. I'm also poor, and have a very short attention span, so through most of my life I have dealt with subpar music-playing devices. But every now and then when I've been able to get my hands on some of the good stuff, there is just nothing like listening to really good music or a really well-produced podcast on good equipment. Despite that, I have spent the last few years dealing with earbuds. I would buy them in quantity, so that I would always have a pair around, but they were still constantly getting lost, breaking, or delivering a subpar experience just out of the box. The pairs that I was able to hold onto were inevitably, like, bright pink and half-broken. So when Studio came along and offered the sponsorship, I was floored, but also cautious. I really did not want to end up plugging a product that I didn't like. Royfield assured me that if I was unhappy with the product, there was no requirement for me to do the plug, I would just have to return the headphones. So it was that in early December, I got my pair of studio headphones in the mail. I got the Regent, which are the big over-ear jobbers. The sound quality on these things is amazing, but almost as important, they are durable and convenient. It's been two months, during which time I moved, and I have not been able to break or lose them yet. They are Bluetooth headphones, and they pair really easily with my phone, which is a big deal for me, as I don't have the attention span to fight with computer programs. But when I'm listening to podcasts, I'm usually doing things like cleaning, where wires can be a real pain. So this is a really nice feature. The headphones charge in like 10 minutes using a mini USB cable, which is the same thing your phone uses if you have an Android. If you have an Apple, why? Anyway, the headphones themselves have a 24-hour battery life, and that's 24 hours of active use, like actually listening to something. You can keep them on standby mode for 20 days between charges, so these things will always be ready to go, and I can say that from personal experience. I am really terrible at charging things, and these things are almost always ready to go, and when they're not, it just takes a few minutes. Of course, they also look stylish, which is one of Studio's big things. They bring together the nice technology with also the good looks. They have these shiny black discs on the ears that you can swap out if you want, but most of the headphones are a classy matte black with some tasteful gold highlights. These things are seriously the best thing I own right now, you know, other than the house, which, you know, really the bank owns that. 
Anyway, I highly recommend them if you're in the market for some higher quality audio equipment. Okay, so script time. Who are Studio Sweden? About Studio. Studio Sweden wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones as not just a tech device, but also an accessory. Currently, the headphones market can offer you one of two things, style or tech. Fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality, and high-tech variations are bulky and not design-oriented. We want to bridge that gap. While emphasizing our modern Scandinavian design, we also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. We also provide free worldwide shipping. They have three different models of headphone, and incidentally, I'm going to be doing three plugs, so I'll tell you about one model in each plug. I've already covered the Regent over-ear model, which is what I got, so I'll wrap it up for today. Just remember, if you want to buy a pair of any of the Studio headphone offerings, you can do so through their website. https colon slash slash www.studiosweden.com If you do so, please use promo code WTW at checkout. It will get you 10% off and will ensure that I get credit for sending you in their direction. And thanks a lot. In order for a war to be just, three things are necessary. First, the authority of the sovereign. Secondly, a just cause. Thirdly, a rightful intention. From St. Thomas Aquinas's Sumna Theologica. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 39, Warfare in the Middle Ages Part 2, What is War? Baby Don't Hurt Me. Before I get to the episode, some housekeeping. First off, I forgot to say that that reading for the intro quote was by Raven Forrest Rascalzo of the Tiny Vampires podcast. Go check her out, she's really good. Second off, we did it, you guys. I'm recording this from my basement office slash studio at our new place, located just next to my daughter's new playroom, in a lovely little house just over the border from Providence. We are exhausted, we are still exhausted, and my house looks like a poorly designed level from Half-Life. But we did it, and we are so excited to settle into our new life here. We could not have done this without help. Help from family and friends, of course, but also from you guys. You are basically strangers, and yet you think enough of what I have to say that you listen to this show every month, and then pay me money. This outlet has done a lot over the past few years to keep me sane, and at no point has this been more true than during the move. I may not have posted anything in this past couple months, but I was thinking about the show and tinkering with the script, and that has been invaluable in keeping my mind off of all the things I could not control. And then there are those of you who went above and beyond even this and sent us your hard-earned money to help with closing costs. I really don't think I can convey my gratitude for your help beyond just saying, thank you, we wouldn't have been able to do this without you. For those of you who have chosen to support the show via Patreon, your continued support and loyalty, despite the scare with Patreon's abortive attempt to change their fee structure, is doubly appreciated. Of course, I have run up a number of debts to get where we are, and so your continued support really will help with this going forward. Up next, we once again have quite a number of patrons to honor and praise. First up, we have Gary, who shall be known hereafter as Baronet Gary, the Solvent. Next up, we have Keaton, who shall be known far and wide to his friends and enemies as Keaton Stupermapalis. Next up, we have Soren, who shall be known from this day forward as Grieve Soren, the Unexpected. Finally, the last of our new patrons for this episode is Justine, who shall be known from this day forward as Countess Justine, the Ultimate Belgian. We also have a number of donors and patrons who have chosen to make additional pledges in our time of need uh, leading up to and immediately following the move. These are people that I particularly want to thank, and therefore, we will be making additions to their names. Longtime Knight of the Realm Matthew Medium Stockings shall be known from hereafter as Matthew Medium Stockings, the Sleeping Earl of Panorama Point, who will one day wake, turn off the alarm, and go back to sleep. We also have an additional pledge from Brian the Lodger, Binder of the Royal Self-Portrait. However, given the complexity of this name already, I'm going to be leaving it as is. But thanks, Brian! I pointed. 
We also have an additional pledge from Monsignor Aiden of the Cold Cuts, who wishes to have his name expanded to Monsignor Aiden the Unpronounceable of the Cold Cuts. Thank you to all our additional pledgers. And finally, we have one new donor for this episode, Caitlin, who shall be known from hereafter as Caitlin the Oatbreaker. I too like oatmeal, Caitlin. And to all of you, thank you so much for your donations, upped pledges, and patronage. Seriously. Uh, we wouldn't have made it here without you, and it's so great that you did donate. For the rest of you, what are you waiting for? But if monetary donations are not possible, I would just like to remind everybody that giving positive rates and reviews on iTunes are very beneficial. Unfortunately, I missed the month of January in addition to the month of December, so my original plan to have two episodes out in January is not going to happen. But I am going to have two episodes out in February, come hell or high water, uh, and hopefully there will be a third as well. Uh, I'm also going to work on reducing the length of these intros. That's just going to have to be a thing for the future, unfortunately. I have a lot of commitments this month, so it is what it is. Now then, there's one more piece of housekeeping before we get to the episode itself. Listener John Tibble is making his way through the back catalog and pointed out two things about episode 5 on the Scandinavian region. First, that Finns do not consider themselves Scandinavian, they prefer the term Nordic. And second, that Tove Janssen was a Finn of Swedish descent, and not a Swede. Though she published in Swedish, she was a Finn. So that's two black eyes for me in terms of my relationship with any Finns who might be out there, and I really, really must apologize. Mea culpa. First of all, the error about Tove Janssen was simply just foolish on my part. There's no way around it. Sorry. As for the Scandinavian Nordic issue, it turns out that there's a huge amount of debate about this. I actually learned about this debate a few months back on a Facebook cartography page I belong to. For American listeners, this entire thing is very confusing. Scandinavia is just three countries exactly. Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Three kingdoms, to be more precise, all of which are on the Scandinavian peninsula. Well, except Denmark and, er, plus Finland? Wait, this doesn't help at all. Forget that. Basically, in the areas I called Scandinavian, people refer to themselves as Scandinavian only if their country was part of the historic significant Scandinavian Union of Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, and more officially known as the Kalamar Union. The Finns were not really part of that union, although they were a colony of Sweden at the time, and they make a very solid point that their culture is more closely related to the Sami than to the Scando-Germanic cultures of Sweden, Norway, and Denmark who were colonizing them at the time. Of course, they do share a cultural past and present with the Scando countries, and so the Nordic term includes all of these northern countries to describe their jointness. But Scandinavian, that's different. Just to make things extra fun, the peninsula itself is technically called Fennoscandia, but no one calls it that. Most people call it the Scandinavian Peninsula. So, not every country on the Scandinavian Peninsula is in Scandinavia. But they are all Nordic. So yeah, none of this makes sense. But... One of the fun things about identity, especially when it comes to nationalism, is that it inherently does not need to make sense. There's no reason for me to purposefully insult the listeners of a particular region over a bit of terminology that does not impact my life in the slightest. So, in future, when I refer to the region of Finland, parts of Russia, Iceland, Denmark, Norway, and Sweden, I will refer to it as the Nordic region. At least, I will try. Please forgive any future slips of the tongue, and apologies, apologies, apologies to any Finnic listeners out there. And uh, that little clip there was from the CPG Grey podcast, which is actually on YouTube. Link in the show notes. Also, thanks very much to John for pointing this out, and please, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please let me know. You can contact me on Facebook, you can email me, whatever. Everything's working now. The computer works. So, get in touch. On to the episode. Now then, last time out, we discussed the theory behind how the military of the Middle Ages interfaced with the rest of society. Today we will start to try to break down what that meant on the ground. We will do this in two parts. In the next episode, we will look at the kinds of troops that made up medieval armies, how they were recruited, and, to a certain extent, the methods of warfare employed. But today we will be talking about how the society, culture, and technology of the Middle Ages impacted warfare in the way it was fought. And we will begin by discussing a very basic question. What is a warfare? When most of us think of warfare, we get some images in our head, but coming up with a concrete definition is difficult. Our ideas are invariably set by our culture and our time. 
For a listener of this podcast, you might think of GIs storming Omaha Beach, or Roman legionaries forming a testudo. But of course, in modern times, we have counterinsurgency campaigns, where most of the action involves driving around in urban neighborhoods. Or at the other end of the spectrum, we can study historical accounts of highly stylized flower wars in the empires of Central America, whose sole purpose was apparently to capture people to sacrifice to the gods. In short, our assumptions become very blurry when you try and find concrete definitions. I'm not here to do a full philosophical review of the topic of warfare, but it's important to make this point because what Europeans of the Middle Ages experienced as warfare was actually very different from what we might expect. This has led to some serious misunderstandings of the era by historians. In the post-Enlightenment era, which was so influenced by the rediscovery of Greek and Roman culture, warfare implied organized campaigns fought by governments who represented the people that they governed. When the historians of this era looked back at European warfare in the Middle Ages, what they found was bewilderingly amorphous and seemingly pointless. The historians of this era accused the nobility of essentially being meatheads in tin cans, lording it over the peasantry but ultimately unable to cope with the needs of quote-unquote real warfare. In our modern era of mobile, total, and guerrilla warfare, military historians have begun a reassessment of medieval warfare in earnest. The focus on elite military forces, the fluidity of the battles, and the constant focus on negotiations as a military end goal are just a few aspects of medieval warfare that modern military historians have found very interesting and even inspiring. Of course, the shape warfare took in the Middle Ages was, as we've noted in previous episodes, shaped heavily by the interaction between the political and economic realities of society on the one hand, and the ability of a given military tactic or strategy to achieve its end goals on the other. As we discussed last time, there were many ways to defeat the Vikings, but the use of castles and heavy cavalry was the way that won out, due to its usefulness in the context of the feudal system. For our purposes today, then, let us give ourselves two definitions of warfare. One from our perspective, and then one from the perspective of those in the Middle Ages. From our perspective, as postmodern amateur historians sitting at the start of the 21st century, we might say that warfare is a form of socially organized and approved violence, whose aim is the achievement of some end, be it economic or political, and fought in opposition to some form of organized resistance. This distinguishes it from a genocide. I'm sure that this definition could be attacked, but I think it's a good place to start. For those in the Middle Ages, there were a number of competing definitions of warfare, but they're all fairly well summarized by the quote Raven read in the intro to the episode from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. Podcast footnote. I should admit at this point that the quote from St. Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica was in its original form much longer than that read by Raven, so maybe that quote was more of a paraphrase. This version gets to the point and the original was spelled out over the course of about three chapters. End podcast footnote. St. Thomas Aquinas said, in effect, Warfare is a form of violence, sanctioned by recognized authority, that has as its goal a just cause, and which is engaged in for good reasons. This view of warfare brings together a lot of the ideas percolating through the church in the early Middle Ages, and was built up out of the zeitgeist of the late empire and early medieval Christian ideology. It was also built on a classical Roman view of warfare. In this deeper cultural context is the classical conception of warfare with all its focus on conventionally organized campaigns that culminated in set-piece battles that decided the issue. The problem is that no legitimate authority in the Middle Ages existed. Also, there was no illegitimate authority. Instead, as we've seen over the last few episodes, there was a fractal-like plethora of authorities, all legitimate and illegitimate in their own way. In this context, a strict reading of St. Thomas Aquinas would make it so that most wars were, therefore, illegitimate and sinful. A more relaxed reading would indicate that almost all wars of the time were legitimate. This lack of clarity was one of the reasons that St. Thomas was initially condemned as a heretic, but was then later rehabilitated into a saint. This was a powerful framework for those in the Middle Ages to understand their context, which also gave them flexibility in determining whether that context was good or bad. Ultimately, this was important because it allowed the nobility to conceptualize their actions as legitimate or illegitimate. But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. To really understand what St. Thomas Aquinas was getting at with his definition of warfare, let's go to the nitty-gritty and set the stage a bit. How were wars fought in the Middle Ages? To summarize the last few episodes, Europe was home to tens of thousands of lords, all of whom had the social right to use force. 
whose armies were relatively small, and whose primary loyalty was to their families and to those to whom their families had allied themselves. With this context in mind, it should not be surprising that conflict was very widespread, of a low intensity, but with the ability to occasionally flare into larger conflagrations. With tens of thousands of individual actors, you could call them mini-statelets. That's not quite right, but let's start there. There are many possibilities of conflict at any one time. With tens of thousands of little statelets, you can have tens of thousands of little wars. With armies being so small, these conflicts were necessarily limited in scale, at least in terms of the numbers of troops on either side. But then, these lords were all tied into alliance networks that we call the feudal system, and it's very possible for small little local conflicts to expand and draw in more and more actors. This view of conflict in the Middle Ages has been built out by an analysis of the records of the era done by a few generations of modern historians. These historians have reached these conclusions in part by organizing the conflicts in the record into types and then analyzing how these different categories interacted. You might call this something of a natural history approach to the issue, and from an intellectual tools standpoint, it's sort of along the line of how Charles Darwin used the collection and organization of information about birds to tease out the theory of evolution. Except what the historians did was use all these records that we have of medieval conflicts, sort of put them into pots, and then see how they all fit together. According to many historians, conflicts in the Middle Ages can be broken down into two main types, and were fought in three main ways. Typologically, there were these petty local conflicts between those tiny little lords, and then there were the conflicts of high politics. The petty local conflicts would be feuds over minor rights and holdings between noble families. As time went on, these conflicts came to have more concrete aims, they came to have legal justifications, and in the end, many of them were fought just in terms of the legal system, which we'll come back to later in the episode. But at the end of the day, the goals were local and served to better the position of the local lord, the family, or clan. And no matter what happened with the legal system, the threat of violence remained a part of this whole process. Uh, and you read in the records about, say, a neighboring lord uh, attacking a manor house and the lady of the house fighting the lord's men off with her servants armed with crossbows. Needless to say, the numbers of combatants in this kind of scenario can often be counted on one's hand. Though some of the specifics changed, this kind of conflict remained a constant through the Middle Ages and made up the vast, vast majority of conflicts. As a result, most of the military experiences and training that informed the commanders and soldiers of the Middle Ages would have come out of these kinds of local conflicts. The second kind of conflict is that of the relatively larger-scale conflicts of dukes, princes, popes, and kings. Since the armies and societies of the Middle Ages were built out of complex networks of alliances, given moral sanction by the church, these conflicts were fought as much in the court of noble opinion as they were on the battlefield, and as such required serious legal and moral justifications, much more so than the petty local conflicts. The need to justify these conflicts does a lot to explain the nature of politics in this period. In some ways, these conflicts were more of a, a higher intensity, as they involved relatively larger numbers of people in a process that strained the logistical capacities of the age past their breaking point. They were, however, relatively less common, and their duration was severely limited by these issues of logistics. In this, I think it's important to stress the qualifier of relatively large. As I've mentioned a few times, army sizes were very small at this time, for reasons I will elaborate on more later in the episode. Just to give you a sense of scale, though, the Battle of Moret, the largest battle in the Albigensian Crusade, probably involved no more than 7,500 combatants, and was won by a crusading army that hovered right around 1,000 men for the entire war. At the Battle of Brumen, fought between the royal armies of Henry I of England and Louis VI of France, records indicate that no more than 900 men were involved on all sides. The petty raids and actions of the middle and lower nobility, of course, would have involved even fewer men, numbering in the dozens. But by contrast, the Battle of Marathon, in ancient Greece, probably involved around 35,000 combatants, and that's by modern estimates. Something like four times as many men as were at Moret, in a battle that was, while important, not particularly large in comparison to some of the battles that were to come. So, in terms of a grand historical view of numbers, none of these wars involved very large numbers of men. But the most common kinds of conflicts, as I've said, were the small ones that involved no more than a few dozen people. 
Now, like almost all dichotomies in history, there is no real hard demarcation between these two kinds of conflict. And in fact, the idea that there are two kinds of conflict is just a factor of categorization. It's useful for helping us understand what was going on, but not so much in terms of describing sense that you'd look at any one conflict and go, okay, this is definitely the small one, this one's definitely the big one. It's more of a spectrum. And that's kind of the point here that I'm trying to say. There's a range from small to large. As a more concrete example to help you sort of get what I'm going for, you may remember we covered this in the narrative episodes, uh, the story of Duke Evenhard from our series on the foundations of the Holy Roman Empire. At one point, a local noble refused to swear fealty to the Duke Evenhard of Franconia. Duke Evenhard responded by seizing the man's castle and killing everyone inside, as you do. That would be an example of the first kind of limited local conflict. It's just two lords, one castle. The point was just to secure control of this border region. Later on, though, when Otto I rebuked Evenhard for his actions, Evenhard led a major rebellion that sought to topple Otto as a result of his quote-unquote tyranny. This would be an example of the second kind of major conflict as it involved, you know, half of Otto's uh, kingdom. These two interrelated examples show effectively, I think, the difference between the conflict types. It also shows how these smaller types of conflict could spiral into the second, larger kind of conflict as a result of the complexities of the feudal system, and how these petty little conflicts over resources could become imbued with lofty causes like fighting tyranny. Now, these two kinds of conflict were fought in three main ways. There was the chevauce or raid, there was the siege, and there was a campaign of conquest. In a raid, the attackers would simply move through the enemy's territory, looting the peasantry and burning things, with the goal being damaging the legitimacy of the defender, undermining their position economically, and keeping the attacker's men happy by keeping them flush with loot. A siege would be an attempt by the attacker to take a castle or fortified city in order to take control of a region or force some kind of concession out of the defenders. A campaign of conquest would be what we might think of as warfare in the classical sense. Armies moving through a territory, trying to secure some political or social objective or objectives that will result in the taking and holding of territory. Of these, the raid was by far the most common, and the conventional campaign by far the least. Podcast footnote. There is some anachronism here that I need to discuss. While there is evidence for these three kinds of military activity going way back to the beginning of the Middle Ages, our framework here of the three kinds of military activity is actually based on a work written by Pierre Dubois, a major military advisor to the king Philip IV of France uh, during the Hundred Years' War. Modern historians have used his framework to help them in their classification project, but it needs to be said that those before Dubois and his contemporaries probably did not think about things in such a systematic way. After all, it was his articulation and systematic usage of these three kinds of conflict that really contributed to helping the French win the Hundred Years' War. That said, his writings are based on an intimate knowledge of the way wars had been fought in France over the course of the previous centuries, and it's supported by the historical record such as it survives. So we should not imagine that he just made it all up, but we also shouldn't imagine that before Dubois, the leaders got out into their great hall, slammed down their mug of mead, and said, Gentlemen, shall we have a chevauce this year or a siege? Rather, there was an inherited experience and understanding of how war was waged in their time and place, and the leaders of the time would react to circumstances based on what, in their experience, was likely to yield the best results. This may seem a fine distinction, but you can think of it as the difference between a doctor making a diagnosis based on a systematic analysis of symptoms and the professional literature, versus a more traditional healer attempting a cure based on sort of inherited wisdom and years of experience. While both have functional value, one is more precise and arguably more effective. So I'm presenting this information in this way for pedagogical reasons, but there is this inherent distortion in doing so, and you should be aware of that. End podcast footnote. So these three types of conflict had vastly different requirements, which were more or less well understood and implemented by those of the time, and the means for conducting these operations was a major preoccupation of medieval society. But there are a few more points that need to be made before I move on. In terms of this wider picture, the two kinds of conflict and the three kinds of military activity, it's worth saying that the two different types of conflict tended to favor the three different kinds of operation at different rates. Small-scale petty conflicts involving petty lords with small armies clearly would not involve a massive campaign of conquest. Instead, there would be a lot of raiding, with the odd siege thrown in. 
Conversely, large-scale political conflicts would be more likely to generate a campaign of conquest, but it's worth saying that even these conflicts were often fought exclusively through small-scale raids and sieges. Second, when we talk about the different goals of these operations and their tactical expressions, it's really easy to lose one of the overriding features of warfare in the Middle Ages. Yes, everyone was armed and running around burning farms and killing each other. They were also constantly engaged in negotiations. At the start of battle, there would be a negotiation. At the end of battle, there would be a negotiation. Even as one side was running as hard as they could away, there would be messengers going back and forth to negotiate ransoms and the burial of the dead. Sieges would start with negotiations, and the vast, vast, vast majority of them would end with negotiated settlements. It is impossible to understand most of medieval warfare without this context. Most armies did not go into conflict expecting the total extermination of their enemies. They just wanted to kill, burn, and destroy enough to force the other side to say uncle and give them what they wanted. Possibly even more paradoxically from our standpoint, the end result of these negotiations was often a legal document that was duly registered with the local authorities. In our modern era of ideological and racially motivated conflicts fought in total war campaigns of extermination, this is probably the hardest thing to conceptualize, and as a result, I'm going to be spending most of the episode talking about it. But before I turn to that, I have one final practical aspect of conflict to discuss. The role of the castle in medieval warfare, politics, and culture. I've sort of danced around castles so far in this story, largely because they are simultaneously very important, while also being weighed down with a lot of romantic baggage. So let us begin unromantically. At a basic level, a castle was just a fort. You pick a spot that's easy to defend, you build walls, you build towers, you put a moat around the outside, you put troops inside. This isn't magic. These things have been around since the dawn of warfare. What differentiates a castle is the role that it played in society. Now firstly, castles were private possessions of a noble. In a society with a functioning government, private individuals are not generally allowed to build fortifications. So that's an important point. It comes out of the decentralization of power. Beyond this, castles were not necessarily built as some sort of system of frontier border defense, or to protect local civilians. <laughs> no, definitely not that. Some had this function. Civilians could come inside the walls, and in Italy, many of what came to be called castello were actually fortified villages, so the civilians were already inside the walls. But for the most part, castles were an aspect of the privatized military of the Middle Ages. Their role was specifically to protect the lord and the lord's stuff, and his family, and most of all, that family's claim to a territory. This is an important distinction because it gets back to the very individualized nature of power in this time period. The Lord's power was based on control of land, as we've said. In the Middle Ages, as now, possession was nine-tenths of the law. If a stronger neighbor could come in and take the land from a weaker one, that often was that. So the land had to be guarded. But that had to be done on the cheap, due to the economic context. So, castles gave their garrisons a place to rest, a base for patrols of the countryside, and most importantly, allowed a small group of a few dozen men to hold off armies of hundreds. And so long as the garrison held the castle, an attacking force could not hold the land without maintaining that army of hundreds. And this was just something that most lords could not do in the Middle Ages. Armies are composed of people, and in the Middle Ages of horses, and horses and men need food and other supplies, military equipment and such, and if we're being honest, they need money, or eventually they get bored and go home. To keep an army in the field, all of these resources would need to be collected, organized, and sent out to the army on a regular basis. Medieval militaries were just really not well set up to deal with this. As we discussed last time, the main form of wealth in the Middle Ages was agricultural. To pay his soldiers, the lord had already given them much of his land, meaning that the lord often did not have as much resources in his own hands as the size of his supposed holdings might indicate. And it turns out that setting up the kind of logistical process that takes food from the farms and brings it to an army in the field is actually in itself expensive and complicated, and requires a lot of institutional strength. Even for the larger lords with more resources, the collapse of central authority and the catastrophic drop in literacy meant that the knowledge of how to run this kind of operation was just often not there, and there was no tradition of doing so. What this means is that most lords just straight up did not have the resources to keep armies in the field, full stop. Even if they did have the resources technically on paper, no one knew what to do with them. Maybe the resources would be left spread out over the lords' holdings, making it very hard to transport them. If they were gathered to a central point, maybe the carts wouldn't be arranged. 
if the carts were arranged, they would maybe they would actually try to move everything all at once, or not arrange for regular enough shipments, or the shipments wouldn't be guarded. And then, assuming that somehow the Lord managed to put everything together, there's no guarantee that the people that the Lord put in charge of this process would understand what needed to be done, or honest enough to not try and skim stuff off the top. In fact, when it did come about in the early modern period that lords and kings were managed to start centralizing this kind of thing, a huge portion of the resources involved were dedicated to corruption. All of this is to say that castles aren't some kind of magical defensive system indigenous to Europe. To be sure, there are some really superb examples of military architecture in the European tradition. And to be sure, for the people who built the castles, the idea was certainly to make the castle as strong as possible so that they could be held forever. But in retrospect, that's not really how it worked. The real strength of castles was just that they could hold off most enemies long enough that the attacking lord would go broke, hungry, or die of illness before the defenders gave up. In this, they were remarkably successful. In the records, a successful assault on a castle is ridiculously rare. Most castles were never attacked. When they were, most held. Of those that fell, most fell due to treachery or lack of preparation. When a castle was properly prepared and laid to siege, the vast majority of sieges either failed or ended up making a negotiated settlement with the attackers after months and months and months of highly expensive and costly siege. An actual fight to the death in a castle was so rare as to be almost unheard of in the Chronicles. I can only think of one or two examples. And these examples that I have come across were in situations like a crusade, where surrender was really, really not possible. It's telling that even in the context of crusades, most castles end up falling as a result of negotiations after a siege. Even if the castle was taken in a siege, the process took so long that the campaign season was nearly over and everyone had to start heading home because the lord was broke and they were out of food. The bullet point of this presentation is this. The collapse of central authority made it so lords could build castles, and also locked the lord into a feudal military system that provided soldiers, but made the lord resource poor. Castles, in the context of a military system with almost no logisticals process, made it possible for a weak lord to hold their land against strong lords. This entrenched the decentralized nature of power in the Middle Ages. Larger lords, who maybe wanted their land back so that they could be less resource poor and would be able to do sieges better, would have to take the land from vassals, who had castles. Can you see the problem? This decentralized power was thus self-reinforcing. Incidentally, this situation also helps explain the prevalence of raiding in the Middle Ages. Since capturing land was very difficult, raids allowed the lord to damage an enemy by utilizing the speed and durability of his knights without exposing them to unnecessary risk. It would also give the lord a nice source of loot, which he could pay his knights with, and keep them trained. Land would only rarely change hands, of course, but it would keep the pressure up, which could bear fruit in the constant ongoing negotiations. So let's take a step back for a second and just review what warfare was in the Middle Ages on a practical level. Due to the extreme decentralization of power, warfare was constant, but of a low level. Warfare played out mostly in a series of raids conducted by knights, which generally did not take any actual territory, because the lack of a logistical capacity in the governments of the Middle Ages made taking castles, which were ever-present, very difficult. These low-level conflicts would occasionally flare into larger conflicts, which did result in campaigns of conquest. And I mentioned that in all these conflicts, negotiation was an ever-present element. The central place of negotiation is hard to really assimilate unless we come to grips with one final, all-important piece of context that I have sort of neglected thus far the cultural context of the Middle Ages as a whole, and the nobility in particular. Like many traditional societies, Europe in the Middle Ages was characterized by a complete and total rejection of newness. This is something of a contrast to at least Greek precedents in the ancient world. A number of historians, including Bloch, have commented on the possible psychological reasons for this. In the context of an almost total social collapse, most people never went beyond 20 miles of their home village. The rhythms of life were very familiar and comforting, and yet the unexpected did sometimes happen. Bandits or raiders could suddenly appear, unexpected weather could ruin crops, loved ones could contract horrible diseases, seemingly at random. The people of the time, and by this I really do mean all the people of all the classes, seem to have reacted by trying to keep everything as stable as humanly possible. If we change absolutely nothing, maybe nothing will go wrong. Stable is one way to say it. Static might be even better. In court documents, the word innovation became pejorative, and it required refutation. 
The idea that something was new was often all that was required to destroy an idea. On the other hand, if something new was being proposed, the person making the suggestion would absolutely bend over backwards to prove that the idea came from some extremely ancient source. Ideally, it would come from the Bible, but the writings of Greek philosophers and Roman legal scholars were also very valuable. The important thing was to never, ever innovate. Much ink has been spilled criticizing the intellectuals of the Middle Ages for their slavish devotion to the wise men of the past, and their conviction that nothing new could be discovered. I think that given this context, we can view this cultural bias with a bit of sympathy. The people of this age were not idiots or blind ideologues. They lived in chaos, with the image of a better time in the undefined past, and any time something unexpected happened, it was likely to make things worse. It brought starvation, violence, and death. Very rarely did it bring anything good. With this background, the destruction of the Carolingian Empire created an odd kind of cultural space in Europe that is actually nearly unique in world history. The Carolingian Empire had, as its central ideological focus, the alliance between the power of the emperor and the moral authority of the pope. Historians debate how real this was at the time, but certainly it was in some sense real, and in any case the power of this bond grew in the retelling. The fall of the empire, and the legitimacy conferred by that alliance, removed what we might call true legislative power from the European political scene. Now, I don't mean legislative in the sense that a group of elected representatives came together to do stuff. Rather, I mean that the power to create new laws fell away. The little lords of Europe simply lacked the legitimacy to create anything new in a political sense. Of course, this was only reinforced by the cultural zeitgeist I just discussed. What this meant was that even though the empire was, for all practical purposes, dead by 888, all of Western and Central mainland Europe continued to view itself as legally part of that empire for basically the rest of the Middle Ages, because basically that was the last source of legitimate authority anyone had. You may, for all practical purposes, be independent as a lord on your little plot of land, but you got your land from Charlemagne, and therefore you continue to consider yourself part of that empire. Legitimacy can be a wishy-washy concept, and certainly everyone bought into it because it suited their needs. But the reality as we understand it is that the very conservative, localized culture of the Middle Ages made it so that buying into this concept of legitimacy did suit the needs of most lords most of the time. Defying it meant defying the cultural norms of one's own culture, and made a lot of enemies in the church and amongst the neighboring lords. This in turn had an important impact on the practical expression of warfare in the Middle Ages. Because everyone was part of a shared cultural and even political space, it meant that warfare operated under a shared set of rules and norms which both constrained behaviors and helped actually determine the goals of a given conflict. To explain what I mean, I think I need to address a few more things. First, the role of the legal system in warfare, and then the relationship of the church with warfare, and then finally bring it all together to discuss the constraints on behavior that this imposed and how that affected goals. What form the legal system took was heavily dependent on where in Europe you were, with a continuum between areas in the south retaining more Roman legal customs, while areas in the north relied more on Germanic-derived common law systems. Two things that were fairly universal were that, one, the lord of an area had jurisdiction over the vassals, so they could act as the judge, uh, but two, they also weren't really allowed to be completely uh, arbitrary. They were constrained by the laws. As for what those laws were, there was the key issue that almost everyone was illiterate, and there were no lawyers left. The collective wisdom of the community was used to fill in the gaps, with testimony from local elders having a great deal of weight in determining existing standards. In most common law traditions, there was an actual position in the court, which was basically just the local old guy whose job was just to sit there, and whenever the lord had a question about what the law was, and keep in mind, the lord is supposed to be the judge, he would turn to old Billy Bob, and Billy Bob would tell him what the, the rules were. Now, given that documentation was often missing, and everyone was illiterate anyway, evidentiary standards were loose, and judges were not allowed to make arbitrary judgments, cases could be very heavily influenced by the testimony of people backing up one side or another. This created a lot of space for the nobles of the area to heavily influence the outcomes of court cases, especially if they could make lots of alliances with other nobles in the area. Conversely, physical intimidation was considered perfectly acceptable. Podcast footnote. 
Of course, in this context, the literati of the church had a key role to play, one which was recognized early and which the church began exploiting in earnest, uh, certainly by the year 1200. Uh, because the church had access to written documentation, they could help inform society about what the old laws were. This allowed things like land ownership and the ties of vassalage to come to a fairly concrete and systematic level for the first time, you know, around 1200. It also gave the church a huge ability to establish its own interests. This would ultimately lead to the production of a truly massive number of forgeries to be produced by the church, with surviving examples numbering in the thousands, and with the practice probably peaking around 1200 as well. Historians have come to a consensus that this practice was not necessarily self-serving. Many of the forgeries may be examples of the church simply writing down something that they felt had been determined earlier, but which was either never written down, or possibly the document was lost. But in any case, the practice certainly worked out very well for the church. And when it was discovered, it led to a certain amount of suspicion from the nobility about this written documentation. End podcast footnote. Now, why should a noble of the Middle Ages submit to a law court? After all, they have an army. They have castles. Come here and make me pay that parking ticket. And to be sure, this is how it went in a lot of cases. But the noble also needed the courts. On a practical side, they helped enforce peaceful settlements to disputes, which was much more efficient than having to fight to the death over everything. On the other hand, consistently ignoring the courts would threaten the nobles' legitimacy in the eyes of their peers, their lord, the church, and their subordinates. A noble that was too cavalier about the courts could face an invasion of their lands by their liege lord, backed up by all the lord's vassals, even as the nobles' own vassals found reasons to stay home from the fight. But this was also not the court system you might imagine today. Because vassals often had multiple lords, because there was overlap between royal and local justice, because cases could often be appealed to higher lords, and because the church had their own parallel court system, nobles had a certain ability to choose which court their case would be tried in. Of course, if the two sides couldn't agree to a venue, that would often bring new, more powerful allies into the conflict. In some sense, then, the legal system was more of a venue for mediation than what we might consider a legal dispute in a modern context. That said, it should also be seen that the legal system and warfare bled into each other almost seamlessly. Violence played a role in intimidating witnesses. It also played a role in just simply forcing the sides to agree to the jurisdiction of one court or another. The legal system, then, was a place to play out a number of the social and political characteristics of the feudal system. They were a venue for a lord to keep vassals from getting too powerful, for vassals to check the power of other vassals, and for vassals to check the power of an overmighty lord. These disputes would be reflected in related conflicts that would play out in open battle. Of course, these courts did not have any kind of official location for most of the Middle Ages, being located usually in the lord's home. And since the nobles of the area would turn up to have their cases heard and support their allies, these courts would also become the main social focus of an area. The lord would be expected to generously provide food and drink and entertainment, and as such these courts gave birth to most of the surviving secular cultural output of Europe for most of the Middle Ages. Podcast footnote. Here also was born the class consciousness known as chivalry, but boy, is that a whole topic we don't have time for. But it is involved in war, so... Alright, chivalry in 30 seconds. You don't kill noble prisoners, you ransom them, you protect ladies and priests, your entire identity is wrapped up in killing people, and you work really, really hard to philosophically justify this as a pro-social thing by being obedient to God and your Lord, and when you die, you pay a bunch of priests to pray for you. How'd I do? I, I think that was good enough. Uh, I'll I should come back to that, but I probably won't. End podcast footnote. The other important cultural factor in the medieval context of war was the relationship of the church with war. And I should just say real quickly, we're not going to talk about the Crusades today, really. That's going to be a whole nother series of episodes. While the morality of the church has often in history been self-serving, contradictory, and corrupt, both in the ethics advocated and the specifics of implementation, Christian doctrine contains a set of ethical guidelines that are not particularly easy to use as a justification for brutal conquest. Things like turning cheeks and the virtues of being meek are sort of central to the message, 
While the church was able to find ways around some of these ethical dictums on occasion, the actions and the writings of the church from the late empire onward show evidence of repeated attempts to impose ethical limits on behavior in the military and political realms. This is something that the church was uniquely positioned to do in the West. Beyond controlling access to heaven, which was powerful enough in an unscientific age, the church had wrapped itself in a Roman identity and an entire philosophical and moral system. In short, the church claimed the authority not just to control access to a mystical spiritual plane, but to stand in judgment of the choices and decisions made in the here and now. This was limited by the church's lack of what we might call hard power, but at the end of the day, the church had the power to confer something that the nobility desperately needed. Legitimacy. So that brings us to the relationship of the church with warfare. Obviously, the church's impact here couldn't have been too extensive. As we noted, wars still happened, in quite a few cases. And yet the records are full of evidence of the church taking a dim view of war and its consequences on the people, regardless of class, and working to impose limits on the practice. During the breakup of the Roman Empire, of course, the clergy were in the front lines, negotiating with the invading Germanic armies. But the real beginnings of the church's struggle with the impact of warfare came, as with so much, with the breakup of the Carolingian Empire. It was during this empire that the church most strongly moved to legitimize the power of a Germanic king. When that empire fragmented, pieces of the church took different sides in the conflict, but still communicated as parts of a single church, even as the different members of the Carolingian clan still considered themselves part of a single empire, even though they were all trying to kill each other. During the early part of this period, we don't get any strong signals from the church about warfare in general. The different chroniclers tend to support their guy against the other guy in writing about the conflicts, at least until the primary sources simply run dry. When we come out the other side of the dry spell, we find that something has shifted in the chroniclers. They now comment on the waste of the conflict in general without really taking a side. My interpretation is that, as the wars went on, the various branches of the Carolingian family became more and more fractured, and the idea of reunification became more and more dim, and the church found itself again as a moral authority overseeing chaos. Many members of the church distanced themselves from the Carolingian clan fragments and tried to advocate for a new direction in society. The high point of this process was the Peace of God movement. The Peace of God movement started around the year 1000 in southern France, an area particularly hard hit by internal conflict. The movement, instituted by local clergy, but enthusiastically joined by thousands of knights and lords, set some fairly tight rules about how war could impact on civilians, going so far as to ban fighting on certain days of the week. The movement eventually broke down, but had a real impact on tamping down the level of violence for a period of time between one and two centuries, and it spread all around Europe during that period. More importantly, the movement served to really codify and articulate the ethics of warfare. Even after the peace broke down, these innovations became very mainstream within church doctrine, which helped further circumscribe conflict and ultimately led to the birth of modern rules of warfare and human rights, all via St. Thomas Aquinas, which we already talked about. So let's try to put all this together. In the chaos and uncertainty after the fall of the Carolingian Empire, there was a real need for legitimacy amongst the nobility. Moral authority and legitimacy came from the church, who had begun to take a fairly dim view of war due to its apparent tendency to kill lots of people and never end. This moral legitimacy could only be translated into action via the activities of the secular lords, who wielded raw military power, but only did so by utilizing the services of knights, who had their own stakes in the game. The need to find a way to balance the interests of all the nobles and the church found expression in the legal system, which served as a space to mediate conflicts and avoid arbitrary abuses of power by requiring actions be based on the way things had always been. With this social and cultural background, you can see how serious constraints would be put on the actions of a lord waging war. The moral imperatives of the church made it so that assassinating rivals or executing prisoners could be really difficult. Land grabs could only be made if justified by some sort of documentation. And if a lord started to become too powerful or successful, there were plenty of ways for rivals to put on the brakes. While all of this might sound good from a moral perspective, keep in mind that a lot of this stuff is very useful in centralizing power and, you know, reducing the number of wars that happen. When combined with the technological and logistical limitations of the medieval military, the behavior of lords in the Middle Ages was heavily circumscribed, something that resulted in a very long-term crystallization of the feudal social order. 
At the same time, none of these constraints fully eliminated the chance for expansion and thus the risk of war. Indeed, the culture of chivalry, which bound the identity of the noble caste to their military prowess, combined with the economic structure of feudalism, which, remember, required loot in return for continued loyalty, simply screamed for war. It was just that the specifics of these conflicts that arose were heavily elaborated by this context. You couldn't just seize a village because you wanted it or needed it, but you could seize a village because your dear wife was owed it as an inheritance. Of course, how the villagers felt wasn't really part of the conversation, at least so long as everyone respected the villagers' traditions. Observers looking back on warfare in the Middle Ages often have trouble taking it on its own terms. There's a lot about all this that is absolutely abusive. The bans on killing prisoners famously did not apply to commoners, and the raids we keep referencing would have been absolutely disastrous to any peasant unlucky enough to be in its path. At a minimum, food would be stolen from people who lived perpetually on the edge of starvation. On the extreme end, the slaughter of a village was rare, but not unheard of. In between these extremes lies a tale of murder, arson, kidnapping, and sexual violence that's 600 years long. While most villages did not get raided, and while most raids did not go beyond the theft of food, the exclusion of the peasantry from a voice in all of this is not something we can condone in any way. At the same time, it's always easy to throw stones at someone else's culture. For those who lived through this, this was the water in which they swam. It was all they knew, and they didn't really think it needed to be different. If we want to really learn anything from this, at a certain point we have to put aside our own hang-ups and take them on their own terms. And they do have a lot to teach us. This system of static competition set up in Europe by this context would have long-lasting consequences. One of the great questions of the early modern period is, why was it Europe that, in this time and place, rose to dominate the rest of the world? Part of the answer is that, in 1500, Europe had spent the last 600 years in a state of constant warfare with itself, and it learned a few things. Europe would never fully consolidate. Even after the rise of the state system and the modernity that it heralded, Europe remained a region defined by a cultural and political order that was simultaneously shared and in conflict. Unitary and diverse. It would take two world wars and the deaths of millions to make Europeans even question the wisdom of this arrangement. And, as nationalism rises again around the world, we can be sure that it's a discussion that has not reached an end. The causes of all this lie way back in the fall of the Carolingian Empire, and the special set of technological, political, and cultural circumstances that arose in the wake of that event, and the way they translated into the 600 years of warfare that followed. That warfare was defined by large and small-scale conflicts, fought in terms of raids, sieges, and campaigns. Of all of these, small-scale conflicts fought in terms of raids were by far the most common. Despite Europe being encrusted in castles, the military system of the Middle Ages was uniquely unsuited to siege warfare for logistical reasons. This reinforced the political decentralization of the time. In this context of political decentralization, the nobility of Europe was desperate for legitimacy, which was provided by the legal system and the church. These institutions heavily circumscribed the way the wars were fought, which also further continued to prolong the decentralization, but also introduced new focuses for warfare and perpetuated the demand for it. That's about it for today. My apologies about the delay in the release of the episode and for the, frankly, spotty audio quality. Hopefully the length of the episode will do something to create a sense of value to compensate you. In the next episode, we will examine the composition and abilities of the armies that were produced in this environment. As we said in this episode, they were often not capable of breaking the deadlock, and for this reason many historians have viewed them with scorn. And yet, as we will see next time, this view we get of the Middle Ages as an era of meathead knights chasing each other around in highly stylized games of coup and counter-coup is very heavily distorted. The medieval battlefield, taken in a broad sense, included peasant infantry, professional mercenaries, skilled siege technicians, knights, jugglers, prostitutes, and merchants. For many of you, this will be a new view of the Middle Ages, and I hope you join me. For now, thanks for listening to From Wittenberg to Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.